Today's sermon comes from Psalm 69. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who would attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore? O oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that this dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me, or the deep swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul, redeem me, ransom me because of my enemies. We have a real dilemma in the Dickerson house. We've had numerous conversations about it. We have yet to find a good solution. It has kept us up. We've lost sleep over it. Actually, I might be exaggerating a bit at this point. Uh, here's the problem. We have too many hot dogs in our refrigerator. After backyard Bible clubs, we decided to throw a little pool party on Saturday afternoon and invite all the kids and parents from our club and have a cookout. And we bought way too many hot dogs, incredibly. Uh, we've got a, a refrigerator stocked full of them. And right after the cookout and the next day, we were having lots of conversations about how are we going to use these hot dogs? And the option of eating hot dogs seven straight days the next week was not an option. So we talked about, should we throw another cookout at our cul-de-sac? Should we invite a bunch of neighbors over and cook these hot dogs? How are we gonna use them and not waste them, not just throw them away? You may have noticed in the service thus far, there's a theme of suffering from the song sung to the prayers that have been prayed. Every person in this room has, is suffering to some degree. Oftentimes, we feel like we've been given a little too much suffering. We feel like we have an abundance of it. We have too much of it. But I would say that we don't spend a whole lot of time talking about how are we going to use this suffering? How are we going to steward it? Most of our conversation around suffering is how can I get rid of it? 
How can I remove the pain? How can I get rid of it? Not. How am I going to steward this well? How am I going to faithfully suffer? How am I going to suffer well? And that's the question that David answers in Psalm 69 as he faces his own suffering. And he's been given an abundance of it. But he responds by suffering well. So how do you suffer faithfully? First, by repenting of sin. The first three verses of Psalm 69 describe David's suffering in very detailed imagery. Waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there's no foothold. The flood sweeps over me. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim. David's laying out his suffering. Now, why is David suffering? Well, you could run to verse four and say he's being falsely accused, which he is, we'll get to. He's being falsely accused of stealing. But why is he being falsely accused? Look at verse seven. For it is for your sake, God, that I have borne reproach. Then to verse nine, for zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. David was the king of Israel. And we see here, he had a zeal for God's house, which was his way of saying he had a zeal for the right and pure worship of God. Evidently, David had called Israel out on their inadequate worship, on their idolatrous worship, which was a, was a pattern in Israel's history. And so his zeal for this right, pure worship of God that caused him to confront his people, to confront God's people about their worship, caused him to suffer because they responded by attacking, which that doesn't surprise you, right? They, they, they were confronted and the response was to get defensive and to turn back on David, right? And hate him and attack him and mock him and falsely accuse him. But what we see here is this zeal for God's house that David expresses in verse nine is a precursor for the greater David who would have zeal for God's house. In fact, this verse is quoted in John chapter two when Jesus cleanses the temple. Again, Jesus, the greater David, coming into the temple, the place of God's worship, calling for reform. And of course, he suffered because of that as well. What did David do when he came into the temple? Well, he came in and he saw money changers at their booths and he saw people selling animals. And he reacted and he responded and he overturned the, the, the tables of the money changers. He drove the, the people selling the animals out of the temple. And then he said, do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now, what was going on here? What was the problem? A lot of times we run to greed. We say, well, the, these, these people in the temple, they were greedy. These money changers, the ones selling animals. But there's no evidence that they were overcharging or doing anything like that. So what was the issue? Well, it was Passover time. And Passover was the time that God's people made their annual trip to Jerusalem to remember and celebrate God's uh, delivering his people out of Egypt through the sacrifice of an animal whose blood was wiped on the doorposts. And so every year when they came to celebrate the Passover from all over, they'd come into Jerusalem to the temple, they would bring an animal to the temple to be sacrificed. Now, for those that lived right in Jerusalem, they maybe had their own animal at their house they would bring. But for those that traveled long distances, they didn't bring animals from long distances. When they came into Jerusalem, there would be booths set up on the roads when you came in. 
people selling an animal. So you could buy your animal to sacrifice in the temple. And if you came from a region that had a different currency, you'd exchange your money so you could purchase the animal. No problems there. The problem is that over time, these animal sellers and these money changers moved their operations into the temple because it was more convenient. Now somebody didn't have to buy it on the road, carry it all into the temple. They could say, wow, we could just walk straight to the temple and just buy our animal right there. That, this was the problem, right? That the worship of God was being pushed back uh, for the convenience of the worshiper. It became, what's the, what's the minimum I have to do to fulfill my requirement to God? What's the minimum thing I have to do to remove as much convenience, to remove as much hardship that I have to do. And so what you had is we come straight to the temple and we buy our animal in the temple. And so a place that was to be of worship became a place of convenience. Think about that today. How to, here's the attitude. How can I fulfill my religious duties without sacrificing convenience and ease? How can I fulfill these religious duties and, and do what I have to do for God, but have the most time and the most uh, uh, resources for me and to do what I wanna do, right? It's that, it's that question of what's the minimum? It's convenience, it's ease. Law professor and technology expert, Tim Wu, and I'm gonna read you some things here. This is, this is a secular perspective. This isn't a religious perspective. Uh, he's a law professor, he's a technology expert, and he says that there's an underestimated force that drives our daily lives. And he says that's convenience. He goes on to say convenience, quote, the most powerful, most powerful force shaping our individual lives and our economies. And then he writes this. As Evan Williams, a co-founder of Twitter, recently put it, convenience decides everything. Convenience seems to make our decisions for us, trumping what we like to imagine are our true preferences. I prefer to brew my coffee, but Starbucks Instant is so convenient, I hardly ever do what I prefer. Easy is better, easy is best. He goes on to say, certainly convenience has some, uh, some positives to it, but he says there's a dark side. Listen to this. With its promise of smooth, effortless efficiency, it threatens to erase the sort of struggles and challenges that, give help, that help give meaning to life. Created to free us, convenience can become a constraint on what we are willing to do, and thus, in a subtle way, it can enslave us. When we let convenience decide everything, we surrender too much. I love what he says there. Convenience threatens to erase the sort of struggles that give meaning to life. There is nothing convenient about suffering. There is nothing efficient about suffering. There's nothing easy about suffering. It is inefficient, it is hard, and it is inconvenient. And yet in our worship of convenience, in our worship of efficiency, it is so easy to try to remove suffering, to get rid of it, to, not, to just remove the pain as quickly as possible, as conveniently as possible, right? To bring comfort and to bring ease. And what happens when you mess with somebody's convenience? 
What happens when you're on the highway and you get caught in traffic making you late for a meeting, right? You get angry. What happens when your internet goes down at your house and AT&T or Comcast doesn't respond very quickly or they don't fix the problem? You get frustrated, right? That's what, we, that's what happens when, we're, when we are, uh, our convenience is attacked. And that's what happens when we suffer, right? Suffering is an instant. It's an instant attack on convenience and on efficiency and on ease. Of course, that's what David in Psalm 69 was calling God's people out for, was their convenience, turning worship into something convenient for the worshiper. It's what Jesus was calling out when he went into the temple because the issue there was convenience, right? Instead of the worship of God. But what's interesting here is how David responds. So you, you read that David is suffering immensely. He's experiencing tremendous pain. How does he respond to his suffering? Look at verse 10. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. Verse 11, when I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. David mourns, he weeps, he's, he's repenting. And of course, his, the people around him say, yeah, see, he is. He is wrong. And look what he, you know, so they're just pouring it on, the mocking. But what is David doing there? It's probably a combination of him mourning and repenting his own personal sin which we read in verse five when he says, God, you know my folly. I'm suffering tremendously, but I know I'm not perfect. So he's mourning, he's grieving his own personal sin. And then he's mourning and grieving just the sin of his people. What worship has become and his zeal for God's worship has caused him to, to speak out and suffer for it, right? But what we see here is that David is, is mourning and he's repenting that that's how David responds to his suffering. And we learn something here really important about how you suffer faithfully. Faithful suffering means focusing more on how you are responding to God in it than how you are suffering. You know, you know it well that when you get in the midst of suffering, that it is very easy to spend 99% of your time focused on what has caused you to suffer, maybe someone who has caused you to suffer and, and, and the thoughts of you know, revenge and retaliation, we're gonna get to it, but just the anger, or if it's, if it's physical, if it's a disease, just the frustration with disease and sickness. And you can spend 99% of your time focused on the suffering and what's causing it and the anger that you feel towards it and very little time on how you're actually responding to God in the midst of it in repentance and worship. Faithful suffering is focusing more on how you are responding in your suffering. How you're responding to God with mourning and weeping and repentance and worship. So how do you suffer faithfully? First, by repenting of sin, by, by responding with repentance and worship and focusing more of your time on the response rather than on what is causing your suffering. Second, by trusting God's justice. So we learn in this Psalm, we've alluded to it, that David is suffering unjustly. Verse four, more in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies, 
What I did not steal must I now restore. So here it is. He's getting falsely accused of stealing because he has people that are trying to get rid of David because David has called them out. He's pointed out their inadequate worship. He's pointed out their, their uh, uh, dualistic worship, all that we see in the Old Testament with Israel. And the response is, we don't want to hear it. And so if we don't want to hear it, we got to get rid of you. So we're going to falsely accuse you, right? He's, he's suffering unjustly. We see this in the book of 1 Peter. In fact, the entire book of 1 Peter or letter of 1 Peter in the New Testament is, is, a, is a letter about unjust suffering. And listen to what Peter says in chapter four, verses three to four. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Maybe you've recently come to Christ and you've made some changes in, 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 in some sinful behaviors that you've turned from and your friends have mocked you. They've gossiped about you because you don't do those things anymore. And you say, God, what's going on here? I'm being faithful to you. I turned to Christ. I've trusted Christ, and this is what happens. Well, a couple of verses later in 1 Peter, Peter says, don't be surprised when this kind of suffering comes on you. Don't be surprised. Why? The natural inclination is to be surprised. We're surprised by suffering and pain because we know it doesn't belong. Peter says, don't be surprised. Why? Well, Psalm 69 is ultimately about the greater David who suffered unjustly. This is a messianic psalm. And it's pointing to the greater David, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who suffered unjustly. Why shouldn't you be surprised? Listen how Peter answers it in 1 Peter chapter 2, 19 to 23. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? In other words, Peter's saying, if you sin, if you do something wrong and you're beaten for it or there's a consequence, what's the big deal, right? You did something wrong, there's a consequence. There's no credit for that. He goes on, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. That's strong language there. It's not to this you've been, it's a suggestion or well, it'd be good for you. You've been called. Why? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. We often talk about, and it's right, that ultimately Christ is not an example for us. And by that meaning, Christ ultimately didn't come to show you what to do. He came to do what you couldn't do, okay? He's a substitute. He's not an example. He substituted himself. He died for you. He rose for you. That is true. But there are a couple times in the New Testament where Jesus Christ is explicitly talked about as an example. And this is one of them. This is one of them. When he suffered, 
he did not threaten. Jesus suffered without retaliating. Why? Well, verses 22 to 28 of Psalm 69 speak incredibly harsh judgment language. In verses 22 to 28, David speaks very harsh judgment language on his enemies. And the key here is this is not David retaliating. This is David, the king of Israel, crying out for God's justice to be done. He's crying out for God's justice. And right in the middle in verse 25, we read, may their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. That judgment verse is quoted in Acts chapter one, verse 20, where it describes Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus, describes his death. Judas betrayed Jesus. Jesus did not retaliate against Judas. Okay, he suffered. Jesus suffered at the the betrayal of Judas who handed him over to the Roman soldiers, but Jesus didn't retaliate. And this language in Acts 1, when it describes Judas' death, it's quoting Psalm 69 to say an act of God's judgment was placed on Judas. In other words, God took care of justice. God took care of judgment. Why didn't Jesus retaliate? 1 Peter 2, 23, I'll finish it. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Here it is. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus entrusted himself. He entrusted his enemies. He entrusted Judas to his father who judges justly. You will never suffer faithfully if you don't trust God's justice. That one, he's just, and that two, he has and will execute justice. Because if you don't trust that, you will take justice into your own hands in the form of revenge, in the form of retaliation, maybe active, maybe passive, maybe just in your mind, maybe physically, but you'll take it into your own hands. And if you've done that, which we all have to some degree, you will quickly find out that you are not designed to bring justice, nor are you capable of bringing justice. But God is. President Mobutu reigned as the president of the Democratic Republic of Congo, 1965 to 1997. And at that time in 97, global political changes were happening and he was forced out of office and the Congo collapsed into utter chaos, utter disorder, utter violence, just absolute tyranny. British pastor Mark Maynell, he describes a conversation he had with one of the men who had fleed the Congo, uh, fleed from Congo with his wife and three daughters. And as, as this happened, this man, his name was Emma, he, he left with his wife and kids. They're fleeing on foot. And the whole time he was watching just horrific atrocities of friends and family members being killed, being beaten, just awful violence. He finally gets to Uganda and for a couple months was just, they barely had food, stumbles across a seminary. I'll shorten the story. Feels called into ministry, gets involved in the seminary. And this was where this British pastor interacted with him. And he sat down with him one day in this tiny little seminary library and asked 
for Emma's story. And here he began to open up and share, and he began to weep over what he had seen and what he had experienced. And that was really uncommon for an African man to weep like that in public, but he did. And he told a story, and listen to these sobering words from Emma, this man who had fled the Congo with his wife and three daughters. You know, Mark, I could never believe the gospel if it were not for the judgment of God. Because I will never get justice in this world. But I couldn't cope if I was never going to see justice done. And then this British pastor went on to say, we in the West often recoil from God's justice for a very simple reason. We've hardly had to suffer injustice. But most people around the globe recognize that God's justice is praiseworthy and great. It's interesting, in America, God's justice is a reason not to believe the gospel. In war-torn Africa, in other parts of the world, God's justice is a reason to believe the gospel. That the way that you suffer faithfully is to trust God's justice, to not retaliate, to not get revenge. And the only way that can happen is if you are empowered by the Spirit to trust God's justice, to know that justice will be served. Every bit of wrong done in this world will find justice on it at some point. Justice will be accomplished. So how do you suffer faithfully? First, by repenting of sin, by responding to God in repentance and worship and focusing more on your response to God in the suffering than you focus on the suffering itself. Second, by trusting God's justice, not retaliating. Finally, by drawing near to Christ through prayer. In verses 19 to 21, David further explains the pain of his suffering. Verse 19, he says, you know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. They gave me poison for food and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Now remember, this is a Messianic Psalm. There are three references in the New Testament to this Psalm. We've already seen two of them. One is zeal for your house has consumed me, John 2. The other is the reference, verse 25, that's referenced in Acts 1, speaking of the judgment that came upon Judas. And here's the last one in verse 21. For my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. When Jesus hung on the cross, he was offered wine to drink two times, two different times. The Gospels of Mark and Matthew pick up both of those. Listen, Mark 15, 23. They offered Jesus wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. So they offered him this wine, Jesus refused it. Second time, verse 36 of Mark 15. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. The second time he was offered it, he drank it. In fact, John's gospel says that Jesus said, I thirst. And they responded by getting a sponge, putting sour wine on it, and giving it to him, and he drank it. So he's offered wine twice. First time he refused. The second time he drank it. Why? 
Well, the first time he was offered wine, it says it was mixed with myrrh. It was actually a narcotic drink. It was intended to numb the pain. It was what they would give criminals dying a horrific crucifixion, which was incredibly painful. They'd give it to them to numb the pain, to ease the death. And Jesus refused that because he would endure with full consciousness the suffering appointed to him. Second time he drank, why? Well, the second time it's this sour wine, which is actually referred to several times in the Old Testament as a refreshing drink. It was a common drink that laborers and soldiers loved because it would quench, it would quench the thirst even better than water and it was inexpensive. Jesus drank this, why? Because he wanted to keep conscious as long as possible. Do you see what he did? The first wine he refused because he wanted to endure the suffering with full consciousness. He wanted to bear the full amount of the pain. Then he drank the second wine because he wanted to stay conscious for as long as possible, prolonging the pain. See, a normal criminal would have taken the first one and refused the second one. Jesus refused the first and accepted the second because he took no shortcuts in saving you. He took no shortcuts in enduring your suffering and your pain. He would not take a shortcut. And it's because of that that you can turn to him in your suffering and pain. And there's not a moment when you're experiencing the most excruciating suffering that you can say, Jesus doesn't quite get it. No, he fully identifies and he showed you on the cross that he identifies by not numbing any of the pain and taking on your full suffering. It's because of this that we can draw near to Christ in the midst of suffering. In verses 13 to 18, David describes how he draws near to God through prayer. Verse 13, my prayer is to you. Verse 14, deliver me. Verse 16, answer me. Verse 17, hide not your face. And then in verse 18, he asked God to draw near to his soul. That David's faithful response to suffering is to draw near to God and to ask God to draw near to his soul. And what that means is for you to faithfully suffer. You draw near to Christ through prayer, the one who knows your sufferings. It means this, that Jesus Christ is more concerned about relationship than he is about result. You say, what do I mean by that? Jesus is more concerned with you drawing near to him and him drawing near to you than he is about removing the pain and removing the suffering. Now, that, I'm not saying Jesus is a masochist and he just loves to see you in pain. No, but what he's concerned about is you drawing near. Now, why is this true? Well, think about the new heavens and the new earth for eternity. There will not be a time in the new world, in the new heavens and the new earth, where you have a circumstance or a situation that's causing pain that you want out of. That won't be the case. 
There won't be something you're turning to uh, for happiness outside of relationship with Christ. The essence of the new heavens and the new earth will be relationship with Jesus Christ and enjoying the beautiful world, the new created world that he brings. So that can only mean, if that is eternity, and that's the essence for you for eternity, then now suffering can only be a temporary gift that drives you to Christ, to that relationship, which will be your end forever and ever. That suffering now, is a, it's a temporary gift. And you say, boy, it brings a ton of inconvenience. It brings a ton of hard. It brings a ton of inefficiency to my life and my family and my vocation. And what we see is that's a good thing. Because suffering drives you to Christ, to repentance and worship, where you find your joy, where you will find your joy, both now and for eternity. How do you suffer well? How do you suffer faithfully? Focus more on how you're responding to God than on the suffering itself, trusting God's justice, and finally drawing near to the one who has already drawn near to you, who refused to to numb any of the pain and suffering on the cross, to fully take care of your pain and your suffering. Let's pray. Father, the Psalms are full of language that we've just read, Psalm 69, just full of language of hardship and suffering and pain. The scriptures are actually full of how we are to live and to respond, resources for pain and suffering in a broken world. Father, we know that there are many in this room that are in the profound grip of suffering right now. Maybe some that are at the end of their rope. Father, would you fix their eyes, the eyes of their heart on your son Jesus, on his work on the cross to take no shortcuts, on his resurrection, on the promise of new heavens and new earth, on the promise of nearness and relationship and intimacy. Father, would you help us to see our suffering as a temporary gift that drives us to your son, Jesus, that drives us to that relationship that will define our eternity. Father, as we continue to worship by generously giving, by singing to you, would you inhabit our praises? And as we, as we sing praises to you, would you, Holy Spirit, sing your worth and goodness and your hope into our hearts? And we pray this all in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.